Father, we are indeed thankful for your many mercies, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, and your goodness toward us in the Lord Jesus. Amaze us each and every day. And we thank you for those blessings which you shower upon us in him, for the gift of adoption, the gift of the forgiveness of sins, of hope, of eternal life, and many more besides. We want to express our gratitude and acknowledge your greatness. We thank you for the day. We thank you for this conference this weekend. Thank you for the season of learning and do pray that it has been nurturing for each and every one, that in turn you will use us as vehicles of blessing in the lives of your people for their good, ultimately for your glory. And we ask now that we might finish well and give us a good, enjoyable, profitable time together. And this we pray, this we ask in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Amen. All right, so to begin with, a little confusing, um, spiritual disciplines, but in your handout, your notebook, what you're actually looking for is the place of biblical meditation in counseling. That is actually the title for this session. This is where we're going to begin, however. Spiritual disciplines set the foundation and then build on that foundation. And I have a few things to share with you this afternoon on meditation. Um, Let me begin. Quick quiz. How many of you have ever read a book on biblical meditation? One, two. Which book? Do you remember? Yeah, I put you on the spot. Uh, okay. Brother? Beeks? Or Beaky? Joel Beaky? Joel Beaky. Yes, okay, very good. We're not going to recommend that one, but it is a good book. I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to recommend a different one. You're okay. You've done well. I don't remember that. I don't. Okay. All right. I'm sure it was good too. Um, I'm going to recommend one in a moment. But I just asked that question because um, that's pretty normal. It's a, it's a word we're familiar with. It is a cool thing in our society, meditation, lots of different variants on the subject. Uh, we hear about it in the context of spiritual disciplines, in the context of spiritual formation, Christian life, biblical counseling. And yet we don't necessarily, um, we're not necessarily that well acquainted with the subject. So I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to share a few thoughts with you this afternoon and trust the Lord will bless our time together. But yes, spiritual disciplines is where I want to begin. Psalm 19. Let's turn there. Let's open God's word. Just read a few very well-known verses and this will help set the trajectory for what we're going to do. So Psalm 19. And what I want to read are verses 7 through 11. And so you have probably read this psalm umpteen times. You have probably heard sermons or participated in studies. And yet here it is again. Please hear these well-worn verses. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, 
sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Notice firstly, the words sufficiency. How do we see it? David uses six terms to convey its fullness. In verse 7, the law. Secondly, in verse 7, the testimony. Thirdly, in verse 8, the precepts. Fourthly, in verse 8, the commandment. Fifthly, in verse 9, the fear of the Lord. And sixthly, in verse 9, the rules of the Lord. Did you get all of those? The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules, conveying its fullness and therefore its sufficiency for every need, for every circumstance, for every condition. Notice, secondly, its beauty. He employs six expressions to convey its worth. And so in verse 7, the law of the Lord is, here's the first expression, perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure, certain, trustworthy. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Therefore, it is of inestimable worth and it sparkles in its unparalleled and unrivaled beauty. Notice thirdly, its efficacy. Its efficacy. When it is the instrument by which the Spirit of God chooses to work, it becomes the very instrument of God's power, its efficacy. And so we read in these verses that it revives us, quickens us, makes us alive. It instructs, informs, educates. It rejoices, delights, thrills. It enlightens and it endures And then notice, fourthly, finally, the words desirability. It is more precious than all riches. Why? It warns. So two sides to the same coin, one negative, one positive. It warns, keeping us on the path of wisdom, and it rewards, leading us to God, our greatest delight. All right, now I do see a worried look on one or two faces. And I, yeah, I know. I was about to say that. That's why I, I meant th- I meant to lead with this, that the notes are not going to exactly match the PowerPoint. Because you know, you know what happens. Here's what happens. You know, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry. Right? I put together the handout, and I think this is the way I'm going to go. And then Lacey's emailing me, we need the handout. We need to put the course book together. We need the handout. So the handout goes in. And I have a PowerPoint. This is taking too long to explain. Bear with me. I have a PowerPoint that matches the handout. But then I start going through the PowerPoint. And I think, I could say that better. I can actually say that better than that. I start tweaking it. And one little tweak leads to another and another and another. Ergo, the PowerPoint does not match the notes. But... Does everyone have Lacey's email? Lacey's email address, you email her, she will respond and attach the PowerPoint. There you go. 
So you can, you can try to write things down. That's entire, that's on you. Or you can just email her later and say, uh, I'd like the PowerPoint, please. And she'll send it to you. And, uh, it, it's Lacey. L. Looper. L. Looper at gracebible.net. All right, thank you. All right. So no more worried looks on your faces. You're flipping pages. Where is he? I don't see where he is. I'm lost already. Everyone's good. Yes. Looper. L. Double O. P. E. R. Looper. All right. Second Timothy 3:16 to 17. Then a wonderful summary statement on those four details which we just lifted out of Psalm 19. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so here is just our starting point for this afternoon. In biblical counseling, as in all things. So this is not unique to what we are focusing on this weekend. But biblical counseling, that is why we're here. And so applying it in that context we must be convinced that God's Word is the instrument of His power. The sufficiency of Scripture. You see it in James 1.18? Of His own will, He brought us forth, how? By the Word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You see it in 1 Peter 1.23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, the very instrument of his power. You see it in Romans 10, 17. Faith, how does it come? By hearing. How does hearing come? Through the word of Christ. When accompanied by the spirit of God, it becomes the very instrument of the power of God in our lives. Hence, we conclude in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. This means... And I think you're in track three, so I'm preaching to the choir here, right? This means that one of the most important components of biblical counseling is engagement with Scripture. If we are doing nothing else, we are seeking to bring people, men and women, whatever the case might be, to a face-to-face encounter with Scripture. Hence the onus on spiritual disciplines. Are you familiar with that book by Dr. Whitney? Many of you, yes? And so I cannot recommend that one enough. If you just want a great dose of spiritual disciplines, if this is new to you or if you're looking for a refresher, uh, that is the book to get. And it will just remind you, introduce you, whatever the case may be, to this vast subject known as spiritual formation and emphasize in particular the centrality of the word in that entire process. Okay? So all of that, spiritual disciplines, we're laying a foundation. We acknowledge that when it comes to spiritual disciplines, we need to focus on the corporate and the personal. Biblical counseling, very personal. And we might think to ourselves that every remedy is personal. I'm a firm believer that 50% of what most people need, if not more, is actually to be in church and engaged in church, in a vibrant local church. And corporate spiritual disciplines such as worship and all that worship entails 
and Christian fellowship and all that it includes. And then obviously you also have personal spiritual disciplines, scripture memorization, scripture reading, prayer, and where we're going to go, meditation. So out of love for Christ, we perform grace-prompted gospel duties through the work of the Holy Spirit. And those duties form a large part of biblical counseling whereby we're seeking to cultivate these duties in people's lives, nurture these duties, whereby they're brought face-to-face with Scripture. Scripture, the means through which God's Spirit works in their lives, producing change, affecting change, and bringing about transformation. Here's my book recommendation on meditation. Anyone heard of this? David Saxton. It It came out maybe four or five years ago. I think, maybe six or seven now, God's battle plan for the mind. So I check downstairs. It's not in there, but I'm sure you can get it on Amazon probably for 10 or $12, something like that. And so if you are interested in really reading up on this and coming to a fuller understanding and appreciation of what biblical meditation is all about, there's the starting point. And then his footnotes and bibliography will help you if you just, this is opening up a whole new world to you that you want to investigate, all right? Here's what I want to do in 45 minutes then. All we have time for is I want to make six comments and then give you an example. That's all we have time for. Six comments, I want to make six observations that I trust will be formative and, and informative and then based on those, uh, just get really, 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 you know, down to the nitty gritty and give you an example of what this can look like in a biblical counseling or discipleship situation. All right, are you with me? So here's the first com- comment. I-, I-, I hope you're convinced of this. If not, I want to convince you of this. Meditation is of utmost importance. You don't look convinced. I will now try to convince you. You all meditate, every single one of you in this room. You meditate more than you realize. And when you sit across the table or across the living room on the couch from someone and you're, you're seeking to be used in their life, discipleship context, you, you need to understand they meditate. We all meditate. And some of you are going to do it. On, who's driving home? All right, so you're going to do it on the way home. You're going to get out on the highway. And unless you've got somebody who's really, you know, an extrovert in the car and just talking your ear off. But you might do it then anyway. You might just kind of block them out. And your mind's going to go somewhere. Isn't it? Um, Without even consciously thinking or deciding to go there. Your mind's going somewhere. When you lay your head upon your little pillow later tonight, your mind, unless you are blessed by the Lord, and you just fall asleep right away, um, you're going to be going over things and thinking on things. We meditate. Here's our problem. Big problem. Most of our thoughts fall into one of these five categories. We, we are basically daily, and you know this is true. I don't need to convince you of this. You just take stock on the past day, the past week. Enticing thoughts. Discouraging thoughts overwhelming thoughts, embittering thoughts, distracting thoughts. 
That is where the mind lives and meditates on these things. And so that makes meditation, biblical meditation, of utmost importance. It makes the mind a battleground, God's battle plan for the mind. Hence Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your Mind, that gray cerebral mass in here, it is to be transformed daily. It is to be renewed, this constant process of renewal. Be renewed, Paul says in Ephesians 4, in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self. And so you've heard about putting on, putting off, putting on, putting off. So much of that is contingent upon the first commandment in these verses, which is be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Set your minds, he says in Colossians 3, 2, on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought Captive to obey Christ. First Peter 1.13 Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.8 I could go on and on and on. This is a biblical emphasis throughout Scripture. Finally, brothers, the Psalms emphasize this a lot. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, oh, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Biblical meditation. Chapter 4, not chapter 3. Thank you. My wife, Allison, must have typed that one up. (laughs) Number 2. Number 2, as if. Number two, the second comment I want to make is this. Meditation is enforcing God's truth upon the soul. And so it is of utmost importance because our minds are always engaged. They're always churning over and over. We all meditate. The question is this. Is it helpful meditation or unhelpful meditation? Is it biblical meditation or unbiblical meditation? Well, as we engage with God's Word, the goal is to take what we think about, what we think on, and enforce it, God's truth, upon the soul. So meditation is not about emptying the mind. We're not talking about Transcendental meditation, we're not talking about any of the Eastern forms of meditation. We're we're, we're actually talking about the exact opposite. It is not about emptying ourselves. It is not about, you know, journeying, taking this journey deeper within the soul. We finally become come into contact with God and enjoy some sort of bare communion of the soul with God that transcends all rational thought in which we get caught up in some sort of inexpressible and ineffable mystical experience. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about picking up the book, reading it, and having our minds actually filled with it, but not merely the mind. Because you know as well as I do, our mind can know plenty of things and then we go on our merry way and act completely contrary to what we know. It is to enforce that truth upon the soul. So Thomas Manton, he states it well. The goal of meditation is not to fill the head with notions, but improve the heart. Now the head is the means to the heart, 
the mind is the way we get at the heart. We cannot bypass the mind. It is the mind that needs to be renewed. It is the mind that must think upon God's truth. But it always has this objective, this great end in view, not knowing simply for knowing's sake, but knowing truths so that we actually impress them upon our hearts and they become transformative. So you can see where this is going to lend itself to the context of biblical counseling. Here it is in a word. That's your heart. So all you campers out there, you had that blaze going and off you went to bed. You get up in the morning and this is all that's left, right? The embers just smoldering there. More often than not, that's our heart and the condition of our heart. What do you need to do to get that going again? Put some fuel on it. You stoke it, right? Maybe even blow on it to get it going until it all ignites and the flames and that fire starts to roar again. This is what's going on in meditation is we recognize that this is the typical state and condition of the heart. We want to engage the truth with the mind so that the heart follows suit and the affections of the heart are triggered, if you like. Affections Love being the chief affection. What are the two expressions of love? Yes, desire and delight. When the object of your love is absent from you, you desire it. When the object of your love is present with you, you experience joy, delight. Another very strong affection is hate. What are the two expressions of hate? Uh, fear and sorrow. And when the object of our hate is a distance away from us, but we perceive it might be coming close, we fear it. When the object of our hate is in our lap or really close in our experience, we encounter grief. These are the six principal affections of the heart. These affections explain absolutely everything you do in life. This is it. We act according to our strongest affection in a particular moment, dependent upon what we have deemed good, set our love upon, or what we have deemed bad, set our hate upon. As we meditate, what are we seeking to do? The love of God, for example. The faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, the steadfast love of God. We are seeking to engage Scripture, the person of the Lord Jesus, the work of the Lord Jesus, and to grow in our understanding and appreciation of these magnificent truths so that our love is stirred, heightened, and therefore we desire Him and we delight in Him. And conversely, we begin to hate what He hates and correspondingly fear what He hates and actually experience true repentance when we do succumb to what He hates. And it is then all through the mind as we engage with truth by God's Spirit then to have that truth impressed upon the heart. One of the most frustrating experiences you have had or you will have in a biblical counseling context is what? You will sit across from a man. You will sit across from a woman. You can't tell. You're not telling them anything they don't already know. They've, they've heard it a hundred times. They might even know it better than you do. They grew up in it. They know it. And they can, they, all the right answers and check all the right boxes. But there is an absolute disconnect 
between what they know here, how they're living, manifesting it in the will, and the reason is why, is because these are not engaged. The heart is not engaged. This is where biblical meditation comes in. It is, yes, to dwell upon God's truth as revealed in God's word, whereby the affections of the heart are actually engaged, and those affections then actually give expression in the choices we make. It's called wisdom is another word for it. All right, so moving on, the third remark. Oh, no, here we are. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, this is, yeah, this is pretty good, actually. So you, so you got those, that embers, and you're, and you're trying to stoke the flames, and you know you have. Here's some real signs when you know the heart is engaged, is when we fear God over man. When, when we fear God more than we fear man, we know the heart is engaged. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. When we prefer heaven over earth, we know the heart is really engaged with God's truth. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When we choose temporal affliction over ease and comfort, it's a big one. 2 Corinthians 4.18 We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. When we're willing to pursue godliness over profit and pleasure. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. And we cannot take anything out of the world. And one more, when we're willing to embrace the greatest suffering over the slightest sin. We know the heart is engaged. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Speaking of Moses. Than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin so those are five markers again you can send that email and ask for the powerpoint if you're unable to get all these down but this is what we're looking for these are the big five indicators that the heart really is engaged and so when you think of biblical meditation the this is the kind of attitude of heart that we're seeking to nurture and cultivate to fear god over man to prefer heaven over earth to choose temporal affliction over ease and comfort to pursue godliness over profit and pleasure, to embrace the greatest suffering over the slightest sin. All right? That was comment number two. I think we're doing pretty well for time. We go right to the top of the hour, correct? Okay. Number three then, meditation is the fountain of godliness. It makes sense if you just think of this diagram. Some of you over there can't even see this diagram. It's not, you're not really not missing much actually. It's, uh, I should have put that in a PowerPoint. But anyway... Next time, uh, you can see how then this cultivates godliness because you think of the mind and being renewed in the spirit of our mind and cultivating this spiritual discipline then of regular meditation upon God's word, whereby we're filling our minds with God honoring God glorifying thoughts as opposed to the discouraging, enticing and depressing and distracting thoughts. And, and as these thoughts take root, they begin to take hold of our affections and we love God more. And as we love him more, we hate correspondingly what he hates. And it just makes sense then, right? That we begin to make decisions and choices and our values and judgments and dreams and everything else begin to follow suit and re reflect this. And so this is not a large leap, is it, to this third point. Meditation is ultimately the fountain of godliness. Conformity 
to the likeness of Christ. I have, we read in Psalm 119 verse 11, stored up your word in my heart. It's a purpose clause. That I might not sin against you. And so there is this relationship, this correlation, not merely again storing it up in the mind and it being restricted there, but storing it up in the heart. And the psalmist, Psalm 119, he, he emphasizes this repeatedly, this emphasis on illumination and inclination. Illumination, inclination, this dual work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, illumination, whereby we understand the word, but inclination, whereby our hearts are bent toward the word, inclined toward it. And when that happens, when the word is stored up in the heart like that, what is the result? I will not sin against you. We value Thomas Manton. He wrote a lot on the subject of meditation. He actually has a wonderful treatise on, is it Genesis? Where is it? You know, Isaac went out into the field to meditate, to pray. Genesis 30-something in there. He has like a eight sermons. He preached on that single statement and unpacks the practice of, of meditation. Very edifying. And so when we engage with God's word with the mind, it prevents vain thoughts. When it engages the affections, it restrains unruly desires. And when it is manifested in the will, it directs errant ways. And so it embraces the soul, transforms the soul. That transformative power when the word accompanied by the spirit of God, yes, enters through the mind, grips the affections, manifested in the will, and the product is godliness. Here's our fourth observation I want to make. Meditation gives life to all the means of grace. And so I don't have a lot of time to explain this. I simply want to state it. What do I mean by that? Well, yes, worshiping on a Sunday morning is important. But I guarantee you, if you're watching a three-hour movie late Saturday night, the effectiveness of worship with God's people on a Sunday morning is going to be of limited value. Friends, that's not rocket science. That's just common sense. If I'm spending an entire week and, and I never crack open God's Word and I walk into worship on a Sunday morning and give it to me and expect it to do something for me, I really am deceiving myself, aren't I? Prayer life, and sometimes we wonder why our prayer life is so stagnant and so tedious and our prayers kind of hit the ceiling. And why prayer sounds so repetitive, it is because of the lack of meditation, that it is as the Word of God dwells in us that it stirs these other spiritual disciplines and actually is key to the effectiveness of those disciplines in our lives. Because you see, when we're meditating upon God's Word, prayer then flows from meditation. Because as we meditate upon it and we come face to face with God's greatness, well, then we have something to praise God for. When we come face to face with His holiness or some demand He makes upon our life where we fall short, well, then we have material for repentance. As we engage with Scripture, we see His will for our lives. Well, there we naturally have petitions and what we should be asking for. And so we find that meditation actually fuels these other disciplines, whether they be personal or corporate. Reading, hearing, 
praying, singing, using the seals, and I threw this one in here just to be controversial, keeping the Sabbath, are of utmost importance. Without meditation, they're like a winter sun that shines but warms not. Now, I'm from Toronto. You talk about a winter sun that shines but warms not. You walk out of the house, middle of January, and you, you think, you know, you owe you, te- I love you Texans. You know, you, the, te- the, the mercury drops to into the 40s and it's just apocalyptic. <laughs> you, you know, up there, you walk out of the house in the morning, 7 o'clock. And, well, actually, you, just, you look out the window, you pull back the drapes and you look out the window, blue sky, not a cloud, and the sun's coming up and it's absolutely beautiful. And then you step out that front door and it's like three degrees. Your eyeballs, like they can't move anymore. I mean, as kids, as kids, I mean, this is going to be gross, but as kids, we'd walk around, we'd spit to see if it would freeze before it hit the ground. That's when you knew, okay, maybe we shouldn't be playing outside. And yet it would be a blue sky, the sun right there and all of its strength overhead, but absolutely no heat. Reading, hearing, praying, singing, using the seals, that's the Lord's Supper and baptism, keeping the Sabbath. Yes, 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 extremely important. But apart from meditation, they are a winter sun that shines. It might shine real bright. And it looks like it should be warm, but it warms not. There is this cause and effect relationship between biblical meditation and all of the other spiritual disciplines. Why? It brings us to the fifth comment I want to make. Meditation is the great fuel of faith. Meditation is the great fuel of faith because through meditation we are engaging with God's Word. Faith needs an object. Faith needs something to fix upon. Faith needs the character of God, the works of God, the ways of God, the wonders of God. And so through meditation, faith is strengthened. And that faith then becomes the fuel. As meditation is the fuel for faith, faith is then the fuel for all of the other Christian graces. Love works, right? When love is engaged, it will work. It will express itself, show itself. Hope will wait. When hope is engaged, that Christian grace is ignited. You will see endurance and patience and perseverance. Patience endures. Zeal quickens. Yes, these Christian graces and many more besides, exceedingly important, but faith stands behind them all. You cannot have love, hope, patience, zeal, or any other Christian grace without faith. And you cannot have faith without an object. That object is God's Word. Hence the onus, the emphasis on biblical meditation and regular engagement with that Word. An object, the nature of God, the providence of God, the promises of God, the works of God, and on and on we could go whereby faith is nurtured, faith is cultivated, faith is strengthened. And then when faith kicks into operation, oh, love will follow. And when love follows, work will follow. When faith is engaged, oh, hope will follow suit. And when hope follows faith, there will be endurance. 
Oh, when there is faith, there will be patience. When there is faith, there will be zeal. When there is faith, there will be repentance. And on and on and on and on it goes. It is all cause and effect working backwards. And you get right down to the foundation. And what stands there is God's Word and our engagement with the Word. And so you can see already, I hope you're building a bridge in your mind between what I'm saying and a biblical counseling context and understanding much of what it is we are trying to do in counseling, in discipleship. It is this engagement, constant, regular, faithful engagement with the Word whereby the Spirit will bring about greater faith. Faith will then lead to these other Christian graces, all of the affections engaged. And when that happens, guess what? you got someone you can work with. Until that happens, you're spinning your wheels in the muck and the mire. Until the heart is engaged with God's truth and faith is nurtured, uh, biblical counseling, discipleship, um, becomes a tedious and taxing role in ministry and responsibility. It's another reason why we need to be bathing our counseling in prayer and recognizing our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit to bring about this kind of biblical change. Here's the fifth comment I want to make. Meditation is stifled by competing influences. And so in our own lives, definitely in counseling, this is something you're going to have to reckon with and you're going to have to deal with because you might put together a beautiful homework assignment that involves memorization. It involves some sort of daily engagement with the Word. And you may have shaped this and put this together in a way that it should touch the affections and yet recognize that there are going to be, there are going to be things in that individual's life that will mitigate against any transformative power through meditation. There are things in that individual's life that are going to dampen, dampen what it is we're trying to accomplish. Now, the senses, for example, taste, touch, sight being the big one, smell, they are inlets into the soul. They will blind the mind, they will lure the affections, and they will capture the will. And so they will be competing against everything you are trying to do here through biblical meditation and absolutely distract and dampen and there will be the number one obstacle right there. It just is. That is it. And uh, maybe in a biblical counseling context, 90% of all you need to do is get people to put that away for a significant amount of time each day and their lives would just be transformed. Absolutely transformed if they could exercise some discipline in regards to their screen time. But it is this and other things, being aware of it. And I think this is where, where our enemy, arch enemy, the devil, comes in and how he will entice and allure and how he will come to us in different ways, using different things, all to distract from the main thing. And having that mindset in counseling is exceedingly important. could say a lot more about that, but I want to get to number six and then get to the example, the case, the case study. Meditation requires a commitment to time and place. A commitment to time and place. And so let me give you a very simple methodology for meditation. You can, you can pick up books and there'll be chapters, they'll be thick, they'll be quite complex. I, I, would, I would encourage you to avoid that. It, that can become a bit too detailed, a bit too tedious. 
Keep it simple. Keep it streamlined. Keep it on point. And just some very simple steps for us to cultivate in our own lives and to seek to nurture in the lives of others. Number one, when we meditate, we do need to pray for God's blessing. We acknowledge our complete dependence upon Him. Open my eyes. There's a great starting point from Psalm 119. Open my eyes in regards to the Word. Illumination and inclination. Step two, choose a biblical truth. When we meditate, it is not the time to figure out your eschatology. That's not what meditation is about. It's not the time to be arguing in your mind of how you're going to respond to someone on social media regarding some theological issue. It's not the time to be unraveling complex puzzles or trying to put together complex puzzles. Meditation is actually when we take those truths we know well. We remember them. We think on them and ask questions of them. Seeking to build the bridge, thereby closing the gap between the mind and the heart. And so the questions we ask, something like these. So, you know, a truth, um, God's faithfulness, maybe. Maybe we're studying Ruth and Naomi. Maybe we're studying Joseph. Uh, Whatever the case may be, we choose a biblical truth, God's faithfulness. We ask questions. What does it teach about God? So what is his faithfulness? Why is he faithful? What is the relationship between his faithfulness and his essence, his immutability? And what scriptures are there that speak to this, God's faithfulness? And what does it mean and what does it imply concerning who God is and how different he is from me? What does it teach about us in relation to God? Well, I'm not very faithful because I am changeable. And we begin to make a comparison as to how different we are from him. How is this truth related to the saving work of Christ? So how do I see God's faithfulness in the Lord Jesus? Beginning with the incarnation right through to the resurrection as the fulfillment of that Old Testament hope and expectation. And how we see God's faithfulness come to fruition that in the fullness of time He sent forth His Son faithful to what He had been promising for thousands of years. How do we see His faithfulness poured out upon Calvary's cross? How do we see His faithfulness as it relates to the covenant and the covenant that Christ has established in His blood? And it goes on and on and on and on. What conditions and experiences does it address? And so I was up last night three hours worrying about something I think might happen next month on a Tuesday. Maybe a Wednesday. And then I start obsessing over whether it will be Tuesday or Wednesday. (laughs) How does God's faithfulness speak to that? Is it of any relevance at all? Why am I obsessing over this? Why is it robbing me of sleep? Uh, What conditions and experiences does it address? Have I been faithful in my relationships? Am I truthful in my words and in my actions? And is there an incongruency between the way I act and who God is? And on and on it goes. How does it apply to us? What is it telling us to believe? What is it telling us to do? And so God's faithfulness, what requirements, what demands, what expectations does it place on me? And then having done all that, and now I've I've filled a couple pieces of paper. I've filled a couple pieces of paper in 10 or 15 minutes as I think through this. Then I ask a very simple question, what have I done? Do I worship God as a faithful God? Do I submit my life as I ought to a faithful God? Am I sinning in ways that diminish and actually deny 
His faithfulness. Uh, and I work through that, what can be a very painful process. And then I resolve. Well, well, okay, yeah, I have done that, I have done that, I haven't done that. Well, here's what I'm going to do today. Just today. The next 24 hours, this is the difference it's going to make in my life. I know it's going to be it's coming up at 3 o'clock this afternoon, that difficult relationship or that difficult situation. This is how the reality of God's faithfulness is going to shape me. I know I'm struggling with that sin, and I've been struggling with that sin for over a week. Well, this is how God's faithfulness speaks to me and gives me victory over that sin today. And then having done all of that, I pray for God's help. Incline my heart. That is a very simple, straightforward methodology. Again, you can buy books on this, which is fine. I would encourage you, if you have not done this before, you take those six simple steps and you add additional questions and you think through what it would look like in your life, what it would look like in the lives of others. You just do it. And you set apart time and place each and every day, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and you have a, a verse, maybe a psalm you're going to go through verse by verse, or you have certain theological concepts you're going to go through in order chronologically. And you do this, and as we do it, as we practice it, the facility, our facility with it grows. Our comfort level with it grows. And we find we begin to tweak this simple six-step methodology to fit us, fit our schedule, and so we don't become too just kind of tied by this sort of paradigm, but develop it as best fits us, as best suits our conditions and circumstances. So finally, with all those six said, let me give you an example of one I use in counseling, discipleship, mentoring context, one I use in my own life. And so the situation, let me just present it to you generally, an individual dealing with habitual sin. All right? Whatever else is going on, whatever other discussions are taking place, whatever other conversations need to take place, that's fine. We're just narrowing in. We have an individual, maybe it's even me, maybe it's you, whatever our current situation is. And an individual who is wrestling with sin, there is some acknowledgement, but an unwillingness to address it head on. Or you're going to deal with this a lot. An unwillingness to take it seriously. Um, an unwillingness to take steps for putting it to death. Um, an insensitivity or even an insensibility to the gravity of the sin and its implications. And so you, you, want, you, want to be, you want to be used in that situation, used of the Lord to, to help that person really come face to face then with their sin and, and, the, and the seriousness of it, the weightiness of it, and for the affections to be engaged because you know you can send them off with 37 things to do. But if if this isn't here, you're, it's just a waste of time. I hate, it's just a waste of time. And so we want to take that step of being accountable, you know, presenting some accountability for that individual. And yes, it is homework, 
but you're, you're being very, you're targeting something. You're, you're trying to cultivate something. You want to see a transformation on this level, the heart engaged. And so, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 presents to us what we're after, right? Godly grief, as opposed to ungodly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And so ungodly grief, ungodly sorrow versus godly grief, godly sorrow. You want to cultivate the latter. And here is sort of a nine-step homework that I, you know, sometimes I tweak this, certainly. Um, But this should at least give you a, a, a paradigm for thinking. And so each day, this is what I would ask the individual to do. Number one, Read, do you love me more than these? That's the very last page in the handout. It was written by Samuel Ward. And so I'd ask the individual, set a time, 6.30 in the morning, 6.30 in the evening, whenever. And you get by yourself, all distractions, iPhone away. You set aside 20, 25 minutes for this or whatever. And this is where you start. You simply read this by Samuel Ward. Consider all that Christ has done for you. Consider how He has forgiven you and conferred so many favors upon you. Is there anything too good, too hard, or dear for Him? Mary, if your tears might wash His feet, would you hesitate to pour them out? Is your hair too good to be His towel? Is there any spikenard too costly for His head? Joseph, the Lord has need of your tomb. Will you deny Him? Zacchaeus, do you love your wealth above him who saved you? Stephen, do you love your life above your master? Do you dare to do anything that is displeasing to him? When you feel the pull of your heart towards sin, set your faith to work with all speed. Let it lay hold of God's power. It secretly empowers your heart with a pliable willingness and makes your will lamb-like. It's meekness. All this it does by laying hold of the effective cure of the death of Christ. The power of Christ's resurrection also transforms the heart of man and creates and infuses him with new principles of action. Trust in his power to mortify your flesh to sin and make your spirit alive to holiness. Do you find a strong, inbred, habitual vice troubling you and keeping you prisoner against your will? Have you often resolved to forsake it, but with failure? You must renounce the broken reed of your own power. Place your trust in the grace of Christ. Be weak in yourself and strong in the Lord. And by faith be more than a conqueror. Fall with Jacob to wrestle with Christ for a blessing. You will go limping away, but you shall be a prince with God and be delivered from Esau's bondage. If Satan has held possession in some strong fort of your heart, Persist in resisting, and he shall fall like lightning before you. Christ can overcome the most putrefied sores of sin, so do not despair. Through faith, you can set your feet on their neck and triumph over them. All right, so they've given themselves a little shot in the arm. And immediately their minds have been focused Christward. And they have been confronted with the significance of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection for them. And then what I have them do then, seven days in the week on the Monday, just work through the different stages of the cross. In Matthew 26 through 27, there are the readings. So on Monday they would read Matthew 26, 1 through 13. And then they would read, Ferris Lord Jesus. 
a hymn. Um, I picked some of the good ones there. Some that I think are extremely well-written. Not just well-written, but they, um, they, convey, they convey the affections of the soul in unparalleled fashion. Upon a life I have not lived, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. A debtor to mercy alone, in Christ alone, when I survey the wondrous cross. And so each and every day to scripture, to the church's hymnody, and you are bringing that individual face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And these heartwarming truths concerning Christ. And then based on what they've read from God's word, based on that hymn, step three, meditate upon the person and work of Christ. So give particular attention to his love. So what Matthew 26, 1 through 13 and Ferris Lord Jesus have to say about Christ's love? How his love has been revealed? Write down your answers. Then step four, ask God to examine your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And so in in, in face to face with the love of the Lord Jesus, work through these questions. What self-serving desires and motives do you see? Confess them to God. What God-honoring and other-serving desires and motives should you pursue? So it's all before the foot of the cross. Step five, consider the seriousness of your sin as that which caused Christ to be sorrowful unto death. Write down the ways in which your sin is against Christ's love because that is the only thing that will bring about about transformation. And you know this. In a counseling context, you can go through boxes of Kleenex and you will hear all sorts of regret. Eh, it's not repentance. Repentance only comes about when an individual is standing in the shadow of the cross. Make no mistake about it, friend. Lasting change, lasting repentance will only occur when an individual is broken at the feet of the Lord Jesus and overwhelmed by his love as conveyed, revealed, and displayed at Calvary's cross. So write down the ways in which your sin is against Christ's love. How is your sin affecting others, spouse, children, church, etc.? Six, confess your sin. I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Work on memorizing each and every day, 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So on Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, what will this mean for you today? What difference is it going to make? What will it mean for your struggle with whatever that specific sin is, sin and temptation? Give specific examples. And then flowing from one through seven, number eight, What will the practice of radical amputation look like for you today? Because if it flows from that posture of poverty of spirit 
as we're overwhelmed by the love of Christ, there is the impetus to actually put into practice those points of radical amputation that we have identified. And then you conclude by praying. The individual prays their prayer. Ephesians 3, where Paul prays that we might know what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we might be filled up to the fullness of God. And that's Monday. And then you do it again on Tuesday. And then Wednesday. And then Thursday. And then Friday. And you are there to provide some accountability. You are there to actually maybe look through what they are writing and the degree to which they really are engaging with Scripture and being renewed in the spirit of their minds. And little by little, when it pleases the Spirit of God to work, faith is kindled, faith is nurtured, faith is strengthened. The other graces begin to kick in. There is resolve in the will. And His grace is sufficient for me today to deal with that sin and that temptation. The place, just one example. Oh, we could go on and on and on about this. One example then of the importance, the role of biblical meditation in counseling. 30 seconds. Is there a question or two? You got all that? All right, that was a great way to end, I think. And I trust something in there that you'll find soul-nourishing and soul-rewarding. Let me pray for us before we head out. Anybody got a long journey? Yeah? So we'll pray for safety on the roads. And uh, when's the next conference? Middle of October? Okay, we'll be looking forward to that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus, the One who loved us and gave Himself up for us. And we pray that Christ's love might truly be the theme of our song each and every day, the theme of our meditation, of our soul's delight, and that we might be transformed as we are brought daily to the foot of the cross to see the extent of Your boundless love for us, the extent of our own sin, and the fact that You love us in the Lord Jesus with a steadfast love. May this change us. May it encourage us. May it fill our hearts with love and hope and joy. And we pray, our Father, that it would serve us well in life for our good and for Your glory. Again, we pray Your blessing upon all that has been learned this weekend. May it be for the the good and well-being of our churches as we head home. May You Watch over us, grant us journeying mercies, especially those who will be traveling a distance. And as we anticipate the Lord's day tomorrow and being gathered with your people, may you be in our midst, well pleased to bless us from on high. In Christ's name we pray, amen.